If you would, turn with me this morning uh, to the Gospel of Luke in the 15th chapter. And please follow with me in Luke 15 as I read the first 10 verses of Scripture. Hear the word of the true and living God. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them, that is, Jesus, this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers. And the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Please pray with me, if you would, and ask God's blessing upon the ministry of his word. Let's pray. O Holy Father, we bow in your presence, O God, crying out to you, as only we know how, for the gracious assistance and outpouring of your spirit in copious measures upon people and preacher alike. And Father, I pray that you would be pleased to override the inadequacies of your servant. We feel so often, as the Apostle Paul expressed it, who is sufficient for these things? And then we confess with him that our sufficiency is of God. Therefore, Father, we cry out to you and we ask you, O oh God, to help. Help us to understand your word. And then, Father, we pray that our lives in turn would be normed by the precepts thereof. And we plead it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If someone were to ask each one of you personally and privately, what kind of church do you desire for Christ's church to be known? What would you want the reputation of Christ's church to be? What would be your response to that question? And I confess up front that it's not really the most reasonable question 
in one sense to ask because there are many things for which we would wish Christ's church to be known. Nonetheless, if one thing could be said about Christ's church, what would you desire for that one thing to be? Our Lord Jesus Christ was known for many things, but in this particular chapter of Luke's gospel, there is one thing that is noted here about our Lord Jesus Christ, one enduring memorable feature of his ministry on earth, and it was this man receives sinners. This man welcomes sinners. Now these three parables of the chapter, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or perhaps the lost two sons, the one who never left home, these three parables are among the best known in all of the Bible. In each of these parables, something was lost and something was found, which is why I've come to call this chapter, along with many others, the lost and found department of the Bible because of these three stories we find in it. These three parables, these three stories, are, are fairly well known to all of us who are biblically literate. But what is less well known is that our Lord Jesus gave these three parables in response to the grumbling criticism he was receiving, you'll notice, from the Pharisees and the scribes, the latter being the teachers of the law. Now the tax collectors and sinners, verse 1, were all drawing near to hear him, that is Jesus, but the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, the spiritual elite of that day, grumbled, we are told, saying, and this was the source of their criticism, this was the source of their grumbling, Indeed, what they regarded as socially taboo. This man, reputed to be a holy man, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Can you believe this? They must have been muttering to themselves. Can you believe the brazenness of it on his part? He has all these pretensions, mind you, of being a holy man, and yet he has the audacity to receive sinners. And more than that, why he eats with them, he dines with them, he interacts with them socially. And it's in response to that murmuring, cynical criticism that our Lord Jesus Christ triples down, as it were, on this charge made against him by the Pharisees and the scribes with means of these three parables that he gives. But the wider context in which we find this section of teaching from Luke is really rather interesting. For you'll notice in chapter 14 from verse 25, Jesus has been delivering this demand for uncompromising, wholehearted discipleship. If anyone comes to me, he says, and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be. My disciple. He goes on to say, anyone who does not bear his own cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. And there at the close of chapter 14, Jesus then says, 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus has just delivered this most solemn demand for unrivaled, wholehearted discipleship. And he says to his hearers, if you have ears to hear, then hear this. Unrivaled allegiance and adherence to my person, he's saying, this is that to which you're called in the gospel. You're not being called to a mere nod of the head or a simple decision to change the way you think about me. No, you're being summoned, Jesus is saying, to a radical transformation of your life. You're being summoned to give your life unreservedly and wholeheartedly to me, the Son of God and the Son of Man. You're being summoned to leave your life, to surrender it unreservedly, wholeheartedly to me. And to give me the unrivaled mastery and sovereignty over all that you are. If you have ears to hear, then hear this. And it is against that backdrop that Luke begins the 15th chapter. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. You see, unlike the religious elite, the Pharisees, the separated ones, and the scribes, the teachers of the law, these sinners, these men and women who were public sinners, they were the social and the religious outcast of their day. They were the misfits of their society, and they had been ostracized by the community in which they lived. They had been meaningfully challenged nonetheless by the word of Jesus Christ. It had pierced their hearts. And when the Savior said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear, they gathered around him as their hearts were moved to hear more from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what Jesus was doing so ruffled the feathers of these Pharisees and scribes, we're told in verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, and we know something, you and I, of this sort of speech. They were speaking in a volume for certain intended ears and none other to hear. Furthermore, he actually eats with them, they're saying. This man, can you believe it? He receives sinners and he eats with them. He interacts with them socially. And what really appalled and flabbergasted these Pharisees and scribes was that Jesus so freely, so openly, and so often mingled with what they regarded as the scum of society. This man receives sinners. You may recall that scene which Luke sets in the fifth chapter of his gospel, where the publican Levi by name, and he's sitting at his toll booth. He's known to us also as Matthew, according to Matthew 9 and verse 9, who following his conversion to Christ, Levi hosts this great feast in his home in honor of his new Lord and master and friend. And he invites, apparently, all of his former business associates and friends. And the scribes and the Pharisees, who like bloodhounds, 
were continually dogging the steps of our Lord, they get wind of it. And so they gather around Levi's house, they peer inside, and lo and behold, what do they see? A congregation of the dregs and the scum of society. Indeed, the vilest of the vile. And every seat is filled with nothing but publicans and sinners. And what really triggered their indignation was this figure who sat in the very midst, in the very seat of highest esteem, Jesus of Nazareth himself. Right there in the midst of the Palestinian mafia, as it were. Right there in the local chapter of publicans and sinners. And what is he doing? I'll tell you what he's not doing. He's not standing up on one of the tables, his eyes blazing with fire, his lips dripping with denunciatory threats, hurling anathemas down on all the riffraff of Palestine. No. He's eating with them. He's dining with them. He's at home with his surroundings. He's at ease among these people. He's enjoying their company as he interacts with them. You see, what was the Savior's glory was for the Pharisees and the scribes a disgrace. Now, I want to look together with you at some Three things that their grumbling, censorious spirit uh, towards our Lord reveals about them. Not him, but them. Notice, first of all, that their grumbling, critical spirit towards our Lord was nothing short of a manifestation of their own self-righteousness. This man received sinners. And who were sinners in their estimation? Well, they were those people over there. Not we, not we ourselves. It's those people around him. They did not regard themselves as sinners. Were they not the elite of the church, of the synagogue? Were they not the recognized doctors of the church, the teachers of the people? You see, something very tragic had happened to these men. In their minds, sin, that ultimate deadly malady, sin had become little more for them than ceremonial contamination and defilement. They never regarded sin as that disease which corrupts and afflicts the heart and defiles all of Adam's fallen race. That there is none righteous, as the psalmist sings in the 14th and in the 53rd psalm. No, not one. Or as the prophet Jeremiah declared when he said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or literally incurably sick. That's how wicked it is. They had minimized the tragedy of sin. They had reduced the tragedy of sin to mere ceremonial defilement. This man receives sinners and actually eats with them. Can you believe it? He sits down with them and he dines with them. Their great taboo sin was little more than ceremonial defilement. But Jesus was indulging in this great sin and he was defiling himself with sinners. How is it that sin 
could become so trivialized in the minds of these men, of the Pharisees and the scribes? How was it that these doctors of the church could become so blind to their own sin? I think the scriptures give us this reason above all other reasons. As we look in the prophecy of Isaiah, these men had become blinded, I think, by their covenant privileges. Israel had had many covenant privileges bestowed on them. They had been blinded by the blessings of God to their need of having a new heart. They practiced circumcision, to be sure, as it was commanded of God, but they had lost sight of the fact that physical circumcision was to be a sacrament, really, of the circumcision of the heart. Our great need is not circumcision of our bodies. Our great need is the circumcision of our lives unto God, the taking away of the old heart and the implantation of a new heart in the presence of God. Do you remember how we learned this so dramatically and, and we can scarcely take in the drama that we see in the third chapter of John's gospel. Our pastor has just preached on this. When Nicodemus, the great teacher of Israel, what a respected man he must have been in his day. And yet Jesus says to this man in essence, Nicodemus, as you are, you are unfit for the kingdom of God. You need a new heart. Nicodemus, with all the accumulated years of privilege and heritage with which you have been blessed, you need the circumcision of a new heart. For unless a man is born again, he cannot see, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Self-righteousness, as it is portrayed in these men, is such a subtle spiritual disease it can be camouflaged, concealed, hidden, masked by correct doctrine. For example, the Pharisees, they were the religious conservatives of their day. Dotted every I, crossed every T, doctrinally. They believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. They would be what we refer to today as strict subscriptionists. They would have adhered to every single orthodox doctrine of their religious orientation. I have no doubt that was true. But their orthodox doctrine camouflaged their profound self-righteousness. You see, self-righteousness is always displayed in one characteristic above all others. Turn over to Luke 18, for example. You see that precisely. Luke 18, there beginning with verse 9. And he, Jesus, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and one a tax collector. Two kinds of people, as it were. And we see both of those in the opening chapter of Luke 15. But there in 8, chapter 18, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Self-righteousness always betrays itself because it looks down on others. 
It looks down on everyone else. It is the principal characteristic of the self-righteous religious heart. Camouflage, though it may be with correct doctrine, nonetheless, it looks down. It may look down morally. I thank you, God, because of the teaching I received. I'm not like other men. I've been taught better. Or it could come like this. It can betray itself theologically. I thank you, God, that my doctrine is purer than the other, do other men's doctrines. Or it can also show itself ecclesiastically. I thank you, O oh God, that I am a Presbyterian. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm thankful to be a Presbyterian. And I wasn't always a Presbyterian, but oh, what a danger, this temptation to self-righteousness, the self-righteous spirit, the temptation for it to infiltrate and to infect our hearts. Lord, I thank you that I'm not a Methodist and certainly not a Baptist. I was one. But some of us picked fun. We picked fun when we was in seminary, what some have, have identified as a Scottish sentiment. And <laughs> this was rather funny back then, but it's not so funny if you think of it in real life. But we used to pick at each other and say, I fear all be heretics saved. He, this is a Scottish Presbyterian speaking to his wife. And he says, I fear all be heretics saved thee and me. And I have my doubts about thee. You see, the Pharisees, they were the religious conservatives of their day. They believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. They, they would be these strict subscriptionists. But their orthodox doctrine camouflaged their profound self-righteousness. You can always see that in these men. Surely one of the principal marks of God's grace in our lives is, first of all, a deep consciousness and the sense of our own other unworthiness before God. When the Apostle Paul declared himself to be the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5, he wasn't just speaking hyperbole. He felt it in his own heart. He was expressing what he felt felt and understood himself to be who am less than least of all the saints he says in Ephesians 3 and verse 8 there's another side to this profound sense of grace wrought unworthiness and it is a love for all the people of God whoever they are it's a love for everyone when God's grace takes hold of our hearts to deliver us from looking down on others, whoever they are. However off-centered their views of this or that may be. These men, these Pharisees and scribes, were filled with this all-consuming self-righteousness. And how we need to guard ourselves against the poisoning sentiment of looking down. On others, But then the second place, notice this self-righteous reaction to Jesus on the part of the Pharisees and the scribes reveals not only 
despicable arrogance towards others, but it exposes the darkness of their ignorance. And there are two things that always go together I've experienced in my, and that's arrogance and ignorance. Anytime you find an arrogant person, ignorance goes with it. Especially people who think they're smarter than others. Because they, they're ignorant of how much they really don't know. But the two always seem to go together. How we need to guard ourselves against the poisoning sentiment of self-righteousness and of looking down on others. But then secondly... Notice this self-righteous reaction to Jesus on the part of the Pharisees and the scribes. It reveals something else. Not only this despicable arrogance towards others, but their ignorance. So the Lord Jesus gave these three parables to expose and to correct not only their warped view of themselves, that they were lost and dead, just as dead in their sin as the publicans and sinners, but they could not see it. For the blindness of self-righteousness. And the Lord Jesus also gave these parables above all else to correct their perverted and twisted understanding of God. You see, this is where they went wrong. These preachers and teachers of the law were a diameter removed from the heart of God. The just, the righteous God. The God who is of pure eyes than to behold evil. But yet he's also the God who loves sinners. And he loves sinners. You remember how the Lord impressed this upon Moses. He says, you know, God, Moses wanted to see God's glory. And he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and then passes before him in that very momentous theophany. And what it is it that the Lord reveals to Moses there. Moses said, please show me the glory and your glory. And God says to Moses, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty. You see, what really rubbed the scribes and the Pharisees the wrong way was not just that Jesus received and welcomed sinners, no. Because these parables go on to show that he's not only welcoming them, he is looking for them. He actually tracked them down. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why did our Lord leave the glory and the comfort and the security of his Father in heaven? It was to seek and to save the lost. Why did he become a seed in the womb of the humble Palestinian maiden virgin? It was that he might seek and to save the lost. Why was he despised and rejected of men as Isaiah records it was because he wanted to seek and to save the lost why did he hang broken abandoned cursed bleeding and dying upon Calvary's tree it was because he came to seek and to save the lost the son of man he said did not come to be served 
but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Imagine, please, what would you do? What would your reaction be if next Lord's Day some people walked into this congregation, two or three people sat down near you, and they were dressed ridiculously, but even worse than that, they smelled horribly. What would you do? What would your reaction be? Would it be, well, I really wish they would have sat down somewhere else. Or would you think to yourself, your first reaction be, you know, I think I'll just move up a few seats forward beyond the stench. Or I wonder if your immediate reaction would be, thank you, Lord, for sending these dear, precious people to this place. What would your reaction be? If you're a Christian, isn't it true that your greatest comfort and hope in life is that God has freely forgiven you of all of your sins, of all of your despicable sins, of all of your private sins that no one knows about but you and God? Isn't that your greatest comfort in life? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. And maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't think I am a Christian. Well, my friend, take this to heart today. If you take nothing else, take this to heart. Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of sinners. He owns the charge of the scribes and the Pharisees against him. He came from glory to save sinners, just like you and just like me. And he will welcome you if you come to him. He will. You see, the heart of the problem with these men is that they were a diameter removed from the heart of God. God is large-hearted. They themselves were narrow-hearted. God so loved the world that he gave. You see, God's love is not some kind of dormant reality. God's love is not dormant. He so loved that he was moved to do something. He is moved to give his own son. He so loved, and that love moved him to give. And these Pharisees and scribes had become hard-nosed, cold-hearted religious elites. But then last of all, thirdly, and this is a brief word, their inward disposition reveals a complete failure to grasp the nature of the Messiah's mission. These were the doctors. They, they were supposed to know the Bible. This man receives, he welcomes sinners. What did the scriptures prophesy that Messiah would do when he came? Isaiah, Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, as a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison 
those who sit in darkness. And Isaiah makes the same point all over again in the 61st chapter of his prophecy. The mission of the Lord Jesus Christ was defined from the very beginning. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that's why in verse 7 of Luke 15, Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There will be greater joy over that one. Yes, there will be rejoicing over the 99 that are already saved, but there will be greater joy, said Jesus, over the one who was not saved, but who is now saved. So there's even great joy in heaven over the saved. And there's even greater joy that breaks out. For what reason? Because another one of God's elect has come home. Another sheep, another lamb has been found. Another sinner has come to Christ. You know, Paul writes in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, verse 22. He said, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Just as the Savior became what he became, to seek and to save the lost, Paul is saying, I'll lay aside every comfort, every privilege, and I'll live in a way that will bring me alongside of the lost and the godless. And I'll do it, Paul says, in order that I might by all means save some. I confess that if we follow what we're being taught here in Luke 15, I confess I don't know what that would mean for us as a church. We're a worshiping fellowship of believers. We exist to offer worship to our God, to make disciples. But if we, you and I, are called to be like Jesus Christ, and if our union with Jesus Christ means anything at all, it will mean that we are transformed into his likeness. Indeed, the likeness of the one who came to seek and to save the lost. But what I do know is this, that if we do not welcome sinners in this place, if we do not have a heart to go out and win sinners, then I know this, we will not be a church for very long. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean, oh yeah, we'll still meet together, but we won't be a church. We'll be little more than a club for the theologically alike. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not to oppose for a moment the absolute necessity for sound doctrine. Surely those of you who know me know better than that. Because I think that one of the great marks of those who are truly doctrinally orthodox are the same folk who have something of the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ for those who do not know God. This man receives sinners. Those who muttered those words 
thought that was a disgrace. But to Jesus, it was his great joy and glory. And again, he owns it, triples down on that accusation by these three parables given in this passage. May God be pleased graciously to make us more like our Savior. No doubt people will say many things about Christ Church in Katy, Texas. Maybe some of it good, maybe some of it not so good. But whatever they say, may it please God that they will say this. You know, that church welcomes sinners of all sorts, of all looks, of all sizes, of all kinds. That church welcomes sinners within its doors. And not only welcomes sinners, but for the Savior's sake, they seek them that He might save them. Blessed be God that Jesus is a friend of sinners, because if He were not, there wouldn't be any hope for any of us sitting here today. Let's pray.